economics, right? We get caught between what orthodox economics says, which is basically you must leave everything to the markets. Um, you mustn't get into debt because you'll change away foreign investors, the ratings agencies. So it's very fatalistic. You just, if you sit back and wait, the market will deliver, but even if it doesn't, trying to shortcut developing is going to make it worse. Okay? And then also what you get is a Marxist pessimism. Okay? Marxists are very pessimistic about reform. Famously, right? That's what led to the split in between the Social Democrats and the Communists. Okay, the, 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 the Marxists are not necessarily disagreeing that you know, some government could do policies that would improve capitalism, but they don't think such a government can exist in capitalism, right? They think that the, the state in capitalism is always going to be captured by, it's always going to be captured by dominant financial and a monetary interest. Okay, so you're kind of caught between those two. Okay, and what kind of gets um, so the aim of this paper is to kind of first of all show the importance of the economic debate, and then to try and demystify it. Right, and I'm going to try and keep it really simple. I might I might fail. I might make it too simple and still mysterious. Right, and then I want to just say, can we reclaim what I'd call the Keynesian optimism? And the Keynesian optimism is, as I said, it's a perennial of modernity, of modernism, right? It's the idea that, and, it's, and it's, I know lots of people will, this is lots of things that are problematic here, it tends to be nationalistic, that the nation state can really shape its own fate. So it's very closely associated with the developmental state thinking, but it's also, it's not exclusively associated with the kind of East Asian developmentalism, right? Okay. And the, what we have here is, 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 an, is an optimism which contrasts with the pessimism that Marxism usually exhibits, right? Marxism thinks that capitalism is totally rotten and it can't be fixed. We must wait for it to smash itself and then we must try and smash it further, jump up and down on its corpse and then we... Okay. And... Orthodox economists tend to be laissez-faire, capitalistic, leave it alone. You can't shape your own fate in the world. Okay, so that's the broad perspective we want. Okay, so I'm going to look at this uh, just very quickly. The conservative transition. Okay. And I, you did, I, did, I didn't touch on that, that quote there by Mandela, but you can see that that's really... Why did we... What did we do after the end of apartheid? We tried to pay back the debt. Okay, so again, the dominance of financial ideas. Okay, so there was a problem we had where we had a big debt inherited from apartheid and we felt that we had to pay it back to people who had lent you know, the government money to buy arms and to do all those things. Okay, right, so the con the, first of all, the, this idea of conservative transitions. It's a very <coughs> um, phenomenon that we observe, right? And the conservative transition is that essentially when parties come close to power or they achieve power, they somehow give up on their emancipatory ideas and just become part of the establishment. Okay? And it happens quite regularly. Okay. And in South Africa, it's, if you look at the reasons for why we had a conservative transition, there's, there's basically two sets of reasons. 
The first is that the, the nationalists in, during the negotiations were quite good at you know, scuppering the transition. In the so which nationalists are you talking about? The Nats. So the Nats. Okay, the yeah. So the, politically, the, if you know about the transition, this is kind of the, uh, the nationalists tried to avoid popular sovereignty. They, you know, they tried to have minority rights. They tried to have... Uh, and they didn't win on that, right? But the ANC kind of took its eye off the ball about economics. Eh? And so... And this is pretty old stuff, but essentially what happened is that at the time, the, the Nationalist Party in South Africa had been newly converted <coughs> to orthodox economics. Eh? Prior to that, the, the Nats were, were good planners. Eh? Remember one planner, one Nat said, you know, I thought supply and demand was interest control. Yeah? Um, uh, so the two things were the ideological conversion to the Washington Consensus Line and trying to force that down and say there's no alternative to this. You know, Sweden has collapsed, the Soviet Union has collapsed, America's doing fantastically. But the other part was locking the state into a particular path, right? Okay, so by the time you get to 94, we'd really done something which at the time was quite advanced in terms of other countries only did it later, which is, you know, have this complete uh, reserve bank independence. And if you read uh, what Vishnu Padiyachi says, he says they were sort of phoned during the negotiations and said, can you write a paper about Reserve Bank independence by tomorrow? Right? So they, write, they wrote a paper saying, no, you must never do that. Right? If you do that, you're giving sovereignty away. You're having a, the Reserve Bank is now outside democratic control. And they sent the paper in, but the, the negotiators gave up that. And they also, as you know, they kept the same Reserve Bank governor and the same Minister of Finance, Derek Keyes and Christophus, right? Other things that, that happened, the, the, what happened with the pension funds, um, you know, the, there were lots of golden handshakes to, uh, you know, they privatized the pensions, there were lots of golden handshakes to people. Um, we, we got locked into the WTO and we liberalized our trade. Um, and we also <coughs> kind of undertook to repay the apartheid debt. Okay, so we didn't uh, repudiate that debt. Okay, and this this set the tone uh, for what you might regard as a kind of repeated failure of popular sovereignty to break through. Right. So you can also look at uh, 1990, around about 1996 to 1998, when there's discontent at Mbeki and there's a push to move to the left. Right, and then again in about 2011 when you have the NDP, and again now with the call for radical economic transformation, but they always seem to kind of somehow get nowhere. And the dominance of economics and finance is no, you can't do that, right? Or you must quickly, you must make your, um, you must really cut back your claims on this. Okay. So, but and also the not only in South Africa, but as I said, there's a wide pattern of conservative transitions, right? Where the, in, the, 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 this, the, the incoming progressive government 
is conciliates elites. And, and what you see is you have mere concessions for the poor. Right? So, and in particular, what you have, it's uh, compared to social democratic um, welfare regimes where you have comprehensive uh, you know, welfare, it's universalistic. You have things like cash grants, um, this, which are literally giving people a little bit of money, but they don't lift people out of poverty. They just reduce extreme poverty. And they're also very compatible with, with, with financialized capitalism, as we know in South Africa, right? Somebody has to distribute those social grants. And the banks have a, have a feeding frenzy. Okay. And, the, and what, if you read about these, uh, this, well, this, this new form of welfare, it's uh, often at the expense of, right? You're giving cash grants at the expense of spending money, particularly on healthcare, on building hospitals. So in Latin America, the irony is you have conditional cash, go- cash grants. Where you have to go, it sounds good, you, know, you have to go to the clinic, take your kids to the clinic, they have to be enrolled at school, but quite often there isn't a hospital. Right? So the people are in a, in a bind, right? Okay, so you get this kind of minimalist and punitive welfare, means testing, and we all know about that, right? Okay. This is the, the minimalist welfare regime which is designed to contain poverty, right? And contain the political um, you know, <coughs> ambitions of poor people, to, to, to douse it, right? Just, and it's very carefully managed. Okay. So, when we look at why, okay, and when we look at the why of it, there's two points that we need to look at. Firstly, on the side of capital, right? Um, class war- warfare isn't just a one-way one street. It's waged by, you know, sure, the, the underclasses wage a class war, but it's waged back at them from the top, right? Um, if you look at the Chile, recently Egypt, right? And you can see this pattern, that if you, democracy does things that power doesn't want, democracy takes a side step, eh? Uh, we saw, and it doesn't have to be tanks. Seemingly, we can't really imagine in South Africa that tanks would, like they did in Chile. Eh? But also, uh, capital markets punishing countries, right? So in Greece. So, and uh, bureaucratic obstructionism. So if you look at why, for example, in, in, in Egypt, you, you get rid of the top, but all of the old, all the bureaucrats and lawyers still support the old regime, right? Okay? That's what happened in Chile in the, in the 70s. That's what happened in Venezuela. Right? And then <coughs> what happens is the, either the incoming regime, as in Chile, tries to conciliate those people and gets nowhere, or they try to set up alternative structures like they did in Venezuela, and those, or in Bolivia, and those become, you know, those people saying, why are you setting up alternative structures? Okay, so, the, and of course, the ideological <laughs> onslaught, eh? ideological onslaught of free market economics. Right? But we must also note that the left sometimes doesn't really need such a formidable enemy, does it? Right? It's kind of like capable of tripping over its own feet. 
a lot, right? Um, and I, I just remember then that Monty Python life of Brian, you know, the, the little splinter groups sitting around arguing and then deciding that they were going to form more splinter groups. Of course, that's a, an exaggeration. But also in the same film, the second story, right? And we had this in South Africa. Um, you know, what did the Romans do for us, right? Uh, apart from all of these things, and, and we tend to be a bit like that with regard to capitalism, don't we? You know, what did capitalism do for us, apart from, right? What did colonialism do for us? And we tend to, I think a lot of people talk like Mandela, and are thinking like Zilla. Okay. And, I, and if you look at the, right, Marxism, in particular Marxism, right, is very ambivalent about capitalism. Because, you know, capitalism cap, you know, and the bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie are the most revolutionary class in history. They're the ones who, you know, destroyed the land aristocracy. They launched this wonderful system of capitalist accumulation, right, which makes us all wealthy. And then, of course, then at some, at some stage, the second stage, we're going to have a revolution and it's going to turn into socialism. Okay. And so with two, the, the devil is in the detail. Okay. In, 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 in principle, you, the, the, the idea of these ideas are, seem like pipe dreams, don't they? You see them cropping up. I saw with the, um, when Zuma was ha having his difficulties. I can't remember it was in one of the leftist things, but saying, look, this is opening up an, uh, an opportunity through which the battalions of workers are going to march and seize power. Right? Okay. So those things don't really have any resonance, do they? So in practice, what we are dealing with is compromising with other classes, always, right? Yeah? Can I just ask you to define what you mean by mixed economy? Okay. Is it public sector and private sector, or is it something else? It's, it's essentially a mixed economy. is an economy that contains both public and private, right? So it's, it has a strong um, <laughs> private sector. So in, in the idea, in a, as I mentioned before, that the, the, the idea is if you can nationalize the commodity parts of the economy, or if you, somehow you can socialize the direction of investment, you don't have to you know, nationalize the risks. You can lead the economy, right? Okay. So we can see this, this, this kind of thinking where you're very ambivalent about capitalism. And also, Marxists are very, are less ambivalent about reforms, right? They tend to be very anti-reformists. They're not, they tend to be anti-revisionists. Okay? So, and we, after, after World War II, a lot of what happens is you see liberation movements coming into power, and the first thing they do is they, is they sideline labor, and they start doing, you know, working with the, what they, the, you know, the so-called patriotic bourgeoisie, the black economic empowerment kind of move. Okay, so that's the, um, so the, the really big debate about economics, right? The, the, the right tends to win by default, okay? Simply because, you know, that, the arguments against are very incoherent. Okay, so let's just have a look then. Um, the key thing there, eh? and this is where I feel slightly you know, more on home ground, being an economist, is macroeconomics. 
Okay. And you've already seen that, that dominating macroeconomic story, you know, that we can't spend money on social needs because there isn't enough money, right? And essentially, I'm going to say that in economics, we can really reduce it, and I'm being reductionist here, to two broad sets of ideas, right? So, and as this, this is again, just to reiterate, this is not new. This is hundreds of years, this division in economics between orthodox sound money thinking and heterodoxy. And the, the heterodox perspective is that orthodox textbooks have money completely wrong. Right? The, they, the, the, our understanding of the financials were, is wrong and it's irrelevant to solving the problems of the real world. Okay, so that's the debate that I'm engaging with now. It's not a specific debate on South Africa. Okay, okay so let's just look at the, the features of the sound money debate. Okay, and at, at the core, right, at the, at the really at the core of orthodox economic thinking is a simple argument that we have so-called decreasing returns which means that as countries get richer, as they get bigger, they use more and more of their resources, so there's less, whereas developing countries have the advantage of backwards, right? So South Africa, Africa still has all those minerals that are untapped. So all you have to do, right, is allow entrepreneurs to come in, and because returns are high, higher than they are in developed countries where you've already developed, right? The economies will grow and you should converge with and catch up to the rich countries. And that's the basic argument. So it's decreasing returns, right? In other words, you start when you're small, you're very profitable. Poor countries are very profitable. And as they get richer, they gradually reach a certain level of income and level of okay? So you get convergence. And what orthodox economists do is they say, well, look, countries like Japan, Korea, earlier, Germany, USA, they all caught up and converged with the leader. There's a tendency for countries to catch up. Okay. And of course, the other side of the orthodox argument is that the state tends to lack capacity and also to be prone to corruption and expediency. So it's prone to expediency in the form of populism, for example, right? So trying to get the economy to grow just before an election. Okay. So if you take those two together, you get a very clear message, right? A, you don't need the state because the market's fantastic. And B, the state is a very bad thing to have. So avoid at all costs, right? And if you look at the, the current orthodoxy, right, the basic model, right, is to seal off the state, or the important, most important part of the state, which is the was finance, right, from democratic forces. Okay, so Wolfgang Street calls this the says in democratic capitalism there's always a tension between markets and peoples, right? And, but in, in recent years, that dialectic has played out and markets are now completely dominant, right? So the, the, the most important marker of that is 
the independence of independence, sorry, of the Reserve Bank. Eh? So what you have is you have the idea here, right, that money is very important. So that's why you know we developed reserve banks. You know, Bank of England back in the 17th minutes of the 18th century, or even 17th century, it was back in Isaac Newton's time, right? And then other central banks, because you can't just let anybody make money. You have to control money, right? But what happened in the, in, in the US in, 19, in about 1951 is there was a kind of tendency to put a Chinese wall between, there's the treasury, right? originally the reserve bank is where the government borrows money, but you're trying to now separate them and say the reserve bank simply, it, it only deals with money, right? It should keep the economy stable, in particular it should keep inflation under control, right? If the government wants to borrow money, it can organize it through the Reserve Bank, but we keep them very carefully separate. The Reserve Bank's mandate is to target inflation. Okay. And so the, what the Reserve Bank does in this is it keeps the economy... In, if, you, if you listen to the radio, it's very obvious, right? You hear, oh, the economy is doing a bit slowly, so the bank's going to reduce interest rates a bit. Okay. Or there's a slight sign of inflation, so we're going to raise interest rates. Okay, so that's the idea, but effectively what you're doing is you're really restricting the control of money into a very narrow field. Huh? Um, with regard to the treasury, right, the government finance, we've got a very similar story here, right? And it's, in, it's a, the story is a very old classical story, orthodox story, which is basically... If you look at these letters here, it says your national income it's, and your, your own income in your, in your pocket goes into, into your consumption, savings, and tax, right? That's all. So, if, and, and the savings are the money that is available for private investment. So, for businesses, for the economy, that's what the economy needs needs private inve investment, right? So that these entrepreneurs can invest, they'll borrow money from banks and they'll raise money on stock markets. Okay. So any increase in government spending, right? If the government increases tax, what happens to? If this is you've got a certain amount of income and you increase tax, what's going to happen? It's got to go down. Okay? Or if it borrows money, right? If it borrows money, well. It's, it's sucking the, the savings out. It's borrowing money, right? And which could otherwise go to the private sector. So the argument is that an increase in government spending, whether financed by tax or borrowing, will always crowd out the private sector. Okay. It's cr crowding out argument. Old story. And of course, that's terrible because now you've got the government sector expanding and the private sector decreasing. The, the final part of this is that Okay, let's look at developing countries like South Africa. These countries are short here. They don't have lots of savings, right? They don't have lots of savings. We've all heard that from okay, in South Africa. Our savings are very low. Okay? So what we can do, so we're savings constrained. The amount of money we have available for investment, for building factories and you know, schools and things like that is strictly limited. 
by a very low savings <coughs> right? in this way of thinking. So what do you do? Well, all you have to do is liberalize your capital markets. So in the old days, you would have had, remember the days of exchange controls and um, holiday allowances and things like that. Nowadays, you go to another country, you just go to the ATM and you take money out. So there's absolutely, there's almost, South Africa has liberalized its, its financial system very extensively, right? Okay. And the argument is, of course, that the, the funds will flow from rich countries, which are capital surplus, because they're experiencing slower growth, into developing countries, and that'll boost development, right? Okay, so to cut a long story short, the narrative in South Africa, why, why are things not great? Well, the narrative is we've done this macro stuff quite well, obviously. And we've got a very shiny treasury and reserve bank, that's, you know, it's, and it's a case of the, the pupil being far more diligent than the master. Eh? Our, our, our reserve bank is much more orthodox than the Federal Reserve. Right? And our treasury is, is very, you know, very hawkish about budgets and things. Eh? So South Africa did well on the macro, as you saw by the decreasing debt, but we messed up somewhere else. Eh? In particular, we messed up in labor markets. We were really silly to get into alliances with organized labor and push up wages, which reduce our competitiveness. And of course, we let the beast of corruption out of the bag. Okay, yeah. okay it's a nice story, isn't it? <coughs> okay, so is it right, though? That's the question. Um, let me just find my... Okay, now, heterodoxy. Okay, now, I think what, what I'm trying to say here is that with heterodoxy... <coughs> Even a lot of what people who are on the left are saying is missing the point a great deal. Eh? About how different Keynesian economics and this is to orthodox economics. Right? It's, it's not quite that we have to say, well, forget about that budget construct. Spend as much as you like. Eh? It's not quite that. It's not quite saying that savings don't matter at all. Right? What matters is spending. But it's much further along that road than we often realize. Okay. So now, in, in this logic, we've got a, we, we're talking about simple developmentalism. Right? We've got, remember we said that the basic story with the um, orthodox thing was decreasing returns. Well, that's just really nonsense. I mean, okay. If you want to uh, do mine minerals. Minerals are decreasing returns, right? But if you want to do industry, industry is increasing returns. Okay, that's the that's the essence of development. You actually have an disadvantage of backwardness and an advantage of leadership with industry. The first comer has an advantage, right? Because they are able to innovate, they are able to get market share. So what you have to do is you have to get out of there's a, there's a coordination failure, right? You can't get market share because you're too small, right? And because you, you can't get market share, you can't grow. So you get stuck into a low-level, just underdevelopment trap. And that applies to countries and to firms. Right? And that kind of trap, if you read about Korea, in the 50s, Korea was riddled with corruption, you know, Business was unpatriotic. 
Okay, and then when they start getting developmental, suddenly people's focuses change and they start, you know, so corruption is not an independent variable, it's something that is, okay, if you're working in, a, in the municipality and no, nothing is working, you'd like to become corrupt. Huh? Okay, so what we have here is, is it's, basic, it's very basic economics, infant industry protection, right? So Korea, they didn't, they decided 30 years we're going to be dominant in, in consumer electronics, <coughs> microwave ovens, cell phones. You can see there's a niche there. Americans haven't taken that. We're going to be, our motor manufacturing companies are going to be world class. J Japan is under a decade or two earlier. Right? So what do you do? Well, you, you, you just, you, you protect those industries, right? And you support them. Okay. What, you, what goes wrong there, and that's what's so interesting about Korea and Japan, <coughs> is that you support industries, but then when those infants grow up, they turn into brats. Okay, because they don't want, right? They're getting support. They've got tariffs. They're getting subsidized by the government. Right? And then when you say, okay, you're out of the house now, you're on your own, they say, no, I'm not. Okay, so you get that perpetual infancy. And in South Africa, during apartheid, we had that. We had infant industry protection, and then we had lots of industries that relied on Essentially, rent-seeking. Whenever you're facing a bit of trouble, you phone your friend in the government and they increase the tariff. So you get... You know, you, you know. Okay, so how do you get out of that political problem? What happens as well is that the bourgeoisie, which you've encouraged, right, is not, is not grateful, right? They, they're not patriotic. They're quite happy to just make profits. They don't want to export. They just want to be protected. They turn out to be just as the same as the, as the you know, what are, what are the swear words we use, the um, international capital and the, I've forgotten the word, but it turns out surprisingly that the, 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 the bourgeoisie is not patriotic unless they have to be. Okay, so what you need is, a, is some sort of mechanism for discipline and for planning, capitalist planning, and that's what we see in these countries. Okay, now what, what that is, it ranges from in Sweden, where you had a very peculiar alliance between organized business and capital, and they, the, the subsidy to business so they could become competitive was low wages. Right? So you had wage repression in Sweden, ironically, right? Where in Korea you had a typical, and Japan, what, what, they, what they did is they controlled finance and they channeled finance into industry. But they also were able to turn off the tap when necessary. So they can discipline you very easily if they're controlling finance. Okay, so the, the, the story there, it's very simple. Hey, to, to develop, you need a developmental state. You need developmentalism. Otherwise, you'll be perpetually a, a low-income country or middle-income country. Okay, so that's the interesting question. What, now, what, what's, what's become interesting in recent macro, in recent scholarship is... is Realizing just how important finance is in this. Okay. That's the big question. How do you pay for this development, right? You can see you need it, and you can see, okay, look, you've changed the logic completely here. And I'll, I'll just show you what these funny things are, right? Um, you, you had this logic that you needed tax for the government to spend, okay? And you need savings in order to invest. But the logic reverses now. That if you invest in the economy, the economy grows. 
and savings grow. Right? If the government spends, so the, 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 the story is the government spends first. If the government spends developmentally, the economy will grow and its tax revenue will increase. Eh? So the Americans had a big deficit after World War II. What did they do? They practiced austerity. No. They, 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 the, the economy grew, and as the economy grows, tax rises automatically. Okay, so this idea that you constrained by finance is the key thing that Keynesians dispute, right? <coughs> you, can find, you can, as a national government, you can control finance, then you can control the economy. Okay. Um, thirdly, I've got to, I'll just see if this works, if it doesn't. We've got, it's, it's, and, and the logic here is, is so simple, hey? right? Okay, we're going to get the advert, sorry. That's where the finance comes from. <laughs> yeah. Money cap collection as effective. And this is Alan Greenspan when he is under oath as chairman of the Federal Reserve. He is faced with a question from Congressman Paul Ryan. Now the question okay, you is can't about see Social it. Security, but it doesn't matter that the question is about Social Security. It could be about defense spending. It could be about education spending. It could be about infrastructure spending. It could be about student debt could be about anything. What matters is his answer. Okay, so let me play Alan Greenspan. Recognize that uh, Greenspan is not the clearest speaker in the entire world, so after you listen to him, I will rephrase. So having personal retirement accounts is, a, is another way of making a, a future retiree benefits more secure for their retirement. And also, do you believe that Personal retirement accounts as a component to a system of solvency does help improve solvency because when you have personal retirement account policy and it's accompanied with a benefit offset, with that feature in place, do you believe that personal retirement accounts can help us achieve solvency for the system and make those future retiree benefits more secure? Well, I, I wouldn't say that the easy uh, gold benefits are insecure in the sense that. Uh, <coughs> There's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. The question is, how do you set up a system which assures that the real assets are created which those benefits are employed to purchase? So it's not a question of security. It's a question of the structure of the financial system which assures that the real resources are created for retirement, as distinct from the cash. The cash itself is nice to have, but uh, it's got to be in the context of the real resources being created at the time those benefits are paid so that you can purchase real resources with the benefits, which of course are cash. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's funny on a lot of levels, and it's sad on a lot of levels. Uh, clearly, that is not the answer that Congressman Ryan was going for there. His question was, again, don't you agree with me that Social Security is going broke, there's no way the government can make good on all these promises to future retirees, their dependents, and the disabled? Don't you think, like I do, that now is the time to begin to move toward a system of personal savings accounts, a.k.a. privatization. 
don't you agree with me, Mr. Chairman? And Alan Greenspan says, no, uh, I wouldn't say there's anything unsustainable about the way the system is set up today because there's, and I quote, nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to someone. That is a direct quote. So all of you young people who are being told that you, we can't keep our promises to you and even people my age, it's only the, the people who are very close to retirement that they tell, you know, you guys are going to be fine. It's everybody else you can't afford, okay? Because first of all, you vote, and the closer you are to retirement, the louder your voices will be. And they're trying to convince the rest of us, especially the young, by going to campuses with the Kick the Can and Peterson Institute funded stuff and scaring young people so that they don't expect it anyway. So they won't miss it because they never expected to get it. Greenspan is saying. Okay, so you get the picture. So now, the, to cut a long story short, basic story is, and this is okay, the basic argument is, right, that the government is never constrained from spending money Okay. And if you listen to what these central bankers say, oh, they say, how, where did the money from quantitative easing come from? And they, we just marked up that account. In other words, they went into a spreadsheet and added a couple of notes to the spreadsheet, right? And they mark up the money supply. Okay. So, and what what um, Greenstein is saying is, it doesn't matter. The debt doesn't matter, right? Provided. There's a future that it creates an asset right, that gives the return necessary. So the problem with the orthodox thinking is it's completely static. You're thinking about the current period. And if you have more of this, you have to have less of that. Right? But all you this is very si simple. It's simply investment logic, right? And if you look at that quite there by that's the, the, the modern monetary theory thinking. In the same way as firms are able to finance the initial spending by future revenues or future revenues that do not yet exist, okay? And therefore must rely on bank credit. The same would apply to the state. In both cases, when firms in the state engage in spending, they just create money. And so what, what is money in this way of thinking? It's just credit, okay? And that's the... Provide, you can create as much credit to, as you like, provided people will take it. Okay, so when you go and you have a mortgage at the bank, the bank doesn't actually need there to be a deposit. It needs, when it creates the, 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 the deposit that it pays to other people, it needs them to trust that, that there's money in the bank, right? Otherwise, it's just you know, electronic transfers going on. So there's an enormous amount of flexibility here. Okay? So the two things that this modern monetary theory goes back to learner highlight. One, sovereignty. It's all, none of it's true if the, if the state is not sovereign. If it's borrowed the money from overseas, then well, of course, you can, the state can quickly loot, become bankrupt if that money is called back, right? And secondly, the productivity of the assets created. Okay. And that, that, that now leads us to the very simple logic, right? The, and, and when we look at developing countries, the old structuralist macro 
that the developing countries have faced two gaps. They've faced the, the savings gap and the foreign exchange gap. Now people are saying, well, hang on, we got that wrong. Developed countries don't actually save, face a savings gap. They don't face a lack of funds, right? If you look at pension funds, and in any case, you, the developing countries have the capacity to, to borrow, right? Not from other countries, but from themselves, from the future, so to speak. Okay? So what this does is it shifts, and I'm almost finished here, sorry. It shifts the emphasis away from financial balances, right, which we're dominated by. We're worried about you know, inflation and the, the, the deficit to the real balance of the economy. I'm saying if, if your economy is in a the, in the low equilibrium track, you can get just your finances completely out of kilter like, like China does. China's finances are techni is technically bankrupt all the time, right? Japan's technically bankrupt. It doesn't matter because you're creating you're basically borrowing the money from yourself, right? Who's going to pull the plug on the government? And you're creating the assets that create the growth and effectively create the savings and the tax in the future. Okay. So what you do then, you can rest, you know, with that. It, it's, it varies a lot. Um, but that's the basic macroeconomic insight. Okay. And this idea that if you look at macroeconomic history. Latin America in the 1930s, crises, they got over them quickly because they basically repudiated debt. In the, eight, in the in neoliberalism, you, you never get over debt. You never get over sovereign debt, right? Remember we said you've had financial globalization, so you borrowed from overseas, and boy, you have to pay that back. Eh? Even if you, your generalism may use it to bomb the population, the company that you borrowed it from company that lent you those things to buy arms, must, they must get their money back. Yeah? There's no such thing as odious debt in this, right? And so the, 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 then what you do with your developmental policy is it becomes possible. So that's what the Keynesian optimism doesn't say, well, now we must be like Sweden and have a welfare state, collect, you know, centralized collective bargaining, all like Korea. It says that those things are not possible. It depends on your own into your own domestic institutions, but that is not shut off by finance. Okay, so that's pretty much it um, to conclude. Okay, one of the things I'd like just to highlight in concluding is that uh, what this this kind of macro thinking, a lot of what you what you're talking about isn't down here. It's not peculiar. It's treated, a lot of heterodox economics is treated as peculiar. But actually, all we're talking about is shifting, for example, from a deficit for, from an austerity to an investment logic. Orthodox economists don't deny that you should invest in you know, infrastructure and that'll give a return. Those, it doesn't call them Keynesian deficits, but Keynesian deficits pay for themselves, right? Because you're creating an asset that creates growth and through taxation it's going to pay for itself, right? So orthodox economists do, do not deny that, right? right? Orthodox economists are also open to various other social democratic and developmental ideas like corporatism. You can read the World Development Report 2012. Suddenly they're all in favour of unions, right? Because the unions are a way that you can get voice, provided they're not political unions, right? It's good to have a union because it's something you can talk to. Okay? 
We also see the notion that inequality is bad for growth. But suddenly the IMF is running with that. Eh? Start to get a bit suspicious when you see that. But and and <coughs> acknowledging that welfare spending is as much again investment. You're investing in people as consumption. But you still have these huge barriers to understanding, right? And what are, what are, I'm, I'm singling out Marxism, I know it's nasty, but you have kind of like these rigid ideas about the bourgeoisie being evil, or, you know, that's, and it's not, it's what, I, what, what is called vulgar Marxism, right? Stalinism and things like that. And orthodox guys tend to see labor's problem always, right? Marxists see the economy as unreformable. Orthodox economists tend to see it as not needing reform. So you tend to get stuck with these things, right? Okay. So, and, and the critical example in the 21st century is, is the welfare sector. Productive investment in people. And that's going to be very interesting to see if we can get some <coughs> beyond the two binaries. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks.